It's time to join Montana's very own and your voice for agriculture, Talking Ag Lane Nordland, for today's LaneCast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Agriculture Conversation here on the LaneCast Agriculture Podcast. And every year, every other year in Montana, it's the Montana Legislative Session. And we are going to be having a conversation about advocacy on the hill in Helena, Montana, and how that impacts Montana farmers and ranchers, but also the impact that it has on Western ranching and farming as a whole. We'll be joining the Montana Farm Bureau lobbyists when we come back, but we're going to take a quick break and actually thank the Montana Farm Bureau for being a supporter of the Langcast. We'll be back right after these messages. As a Montana Farm Bureau member, you have access to a lot of valuable benefits. Now you can have your savings on the go with the Farm Bureau Member Benefits app. The app will show you where you can use your membership discounts with Granger, Case IH, Choice Hotels, John Deere, and more. Plus, with the app, your membership card is on your phone for easy access. It's free. Download the app today. Simply go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Farm Bureau Benefits app. Montana Farm Bureau, we care for the country. Hey, welcome back. And of course, a big thank you to the Montana Farm Bureau. And we actually find ourselves in the conference room at the Montana Farm Bureau's headquarters here in Bozeman, Montana today. And uh, joining us is Chelsea Cargill and Liv Stavick. They are with the Montana Farm Bureau, and they spent the legislative session in Helena, Montana. Of course, we call D.C. the swamp. I I don't know what we'd call Helena, Montana during the session. I don't know. We've always referred to (laughs) Helena as a banana belt, but um, winter of 2019 proved us all wrong. So I don't know. I think we could take, we could um, have a naming contest for for (laughs) Helena, Montana. Well, ladies, thank you so much for for joining me here today. And uh, first, uh, I'm going to start with you, Chelsea. You've been with the Montana Farm Bureau since uh, you were actually in college, uh, interning and and then uh, moving up the ladder in in the advocacy role in in Helena and throughout the year. Uh, Let's just talk about your uh, role with Farm Bureau and the years that you've spent advocating for the Montana Farm Bureau and their members across the uh, countryside. Well, yeah, you're exactly right, Lane, that I actually started um, probably is what we would explain as a bit of a poster child for involvement. I got involved in college as actually a state FFA officer my freshman year of college at Montana State University. I had the opportunity to serve as the parliamentarian for the delegate session at the Montana Farm Bureau Convention. And I remember being fascinated by the process. I remember being fascinated by the people. And at that time, you know, just thinking that that was a really cool outlet. And I had not had exposure to those types of organizations and that role of policy creation in agriculture at that point in my life. And so it was something that was pretty inspiring and pretty motivating for me. And throughout my college career, I went on to be involved with the MSU chapter of Collegiate Farm Bureau and participated in that group all through my college years. And that really provided me a lot of opportunities to travel for a lot of different leadership um, development and just exposure to diversity of agriculture in this country. And also allowed me the opportunity to become familiar with Farm Bureau staff in Montana, learn more about our organization here and how the organization works as a whole on the national level. So I did have the opportunity to begin my, my time with Montana Farm Bureau 
as an intern in the summer of 2010 in college and was able then to just transition into a full-time position with them with when I graduated. So I've actually, um, man, it's getting old. I've been here for a while, but I worked, I really have had the privilege to experience Farm Bureau at all levels as a staff person because when I started, I started as the Western Montana Regional Manager. And so I worked with county farm bureaus and was their staff liaison for every single county farm bureau from Bozeman to the Canadian border and from White Sulphur Springs to the Idaho border. So at that point in time, there was a lot of mileage involved. We then evolved and were able to add a third regional manager. So our regions were a little bit smaller and I spent the first half of my career um, on the ground with our county Farm Bureau leaders learning even more about agriculture and industry and finding out how we could best serve them. And the last half, or the most recent half, I should say, of my time with Farm Bureau has been spent in the governmental affairs world, and I worked as the director of state affairs and handled all of the lobbying work and communications for policy and governmental affairs in Helena. And I'm now actually kind of in the process of a third transition where I don't work full time with Farm Bureau anymore, but have been given the chance to take on a role as an independent contractor to specifically work on leadership and training, or excuse me, leadership and advocacy training opportunities with membership. And, and originally, of course, we can't forget Nicole. Yes, Nicole is the third, she is the third uh, leg to this, this stool. Nicole Rolf works as the Director of National Affairs for Montana Farm Bureau, also as the Eastern Montana Regional Manager. So she wears two hats and does it well. And so a lot of Nicole's time, of course, is spent with our congressional delegation and their staff members here in state, as well as in DC, and facilitating conversations with members. She too comes to Helena because we have a biennial session uh, you know Montana is a, a Farm Bureau is a, a small staff and so it's all hands on deck and she comes with us as well to Helena too um, was not there with us the whole duration this winter because she got to go home and welcome their second child to, into their family and so she's kicked things off with us and then um, spent the rest of the winter back home and of course, Lib Stavik is one of the newest additions to the staff uh, for Montana Farm Bureau. And, and Lib, you're from South Dakota originally, is that correct? So for our listeners out there that are Farm Bureau members that maybe haven't had the chance uh, to, to meet you, let, let's talk about uh, growing up in South Dakota, then making the really good choice of coming to Montana State University here in Bozeman. Let's just uh, talk a little bit about yourself, and then we'll kind of transition into uh, what happened up in, in Helena this year. Yeah, so I am originally from northeastern South Dakota, up on the border of North Dakota and Minnesota. So it's quite a bit colder there, and the wind is always blowing. But my family has a reg registered Simmental herd, so we sell Simmental bulls every February. And growing up, I was always passionate about agriculture because that's what I grew up doing, but I was also very passionate about politics. So I came up here to MSU to study political science and agricultural business. So when the opportunity to intern for the Montana Farm Bureau opened up, it was really the perfect mix for me. And uh, what was it like traveling from South Dakota to Montana State University, where I always say I never saw snow fall straight down and pile up on a fence post? 
Because usually up in central Montana and eastern Montana, it comes in at an angle. Yes. What was it like coming to a university that has the support of the college president that loves agriculture, but also to know that there is an agricultural organization not too far from campus that supports youth that are going to school up there like the Farm Bureau does? What an incredible opportunity for Montana State University and the Agricultural College to have both President Cruzado, but also Montana Farm Bureau, largest agricultural organization in the state, really in their backyard. It really is. And um, where I'm at, it's mainly um, farming, a bunch of corn guys in the area, and we're about the only um, ranch in the area. So it has been nice to make this transition over here because you do get to connect with a bunch of different individuals all over the state from farming to ranching to everything in between. So, and uh, when did you graduate from MSU then? 2018. 2018. Yeah, so almost a year full time with Montana Farm Bureau. Well, and you really had the opportunity to really uh, j- jump off into the deep end right away. But I know John Youngberg; he knew you had the uh, the uh, the opportunity to go up there, and you had that uh, leadership experience and the professionalism to to stand up for uh, agriculture and for Montana Farm Bureau members. So, ladies, I'm going to turn it over to you to kind of share about uh, some of those uh, bills that you advocated on, maybe that uh, you uh, uh, lobbied against on behalf of Montana Farm Bureau. But maybe before we do that, let's jump back to the policy book, because I think some people maybe don't understand understand that a grassroots organization like Farm Bureau every single year in the fall for Montana, they have their convention and policy comes from county farm and rancher, county farmers and ranchers um, on the issues that they see are impacting them. Let's talk about that policy book first. Yeah, absolutely. So Montana Farm Bureau's policy book is essentially how Chelsea and I and Nicole do our job in Helena because we are not permitted to lobby on anything that our uh, members have not already given us a direction for. And that all starts at the local level. So we have um, 30 county farm bureaus located across the state and come fall time, they have their county annual meetings where our members can introduce a policy. And then it If it passes at the county level, it then goes on to the state level where we have delegates from all over the state vote on those policies and they have the opportunity to speak on behalf of them. And these are our voting members, our farmers and ranchers. So essentially our policy is written by Montana's farmers and ranchers and that's what leads our job. It truly is grassroots. And it is, and that that little book that Farm Bureau members like uh, Dave McClure know by heart and they and they know exactly where it is and and Farm Bureau members should have that booklet with them to know exactly what those policies are or if policies need to be changed uh, from year to year but I, I guess Chelsea will transition into what were some of those key issues that were impacting rural Montana uh, on our list here uh, I think it was House Bill 286 and that was the state trust in land. I probably don't have the title right on that, but uh, what, what, what was that in looking to that policy book? What was the advocacy from Farm Bureau this year? Yeah, you know, and that's actually one of our key priority issues that came out of this session and um, came from a good policy platform. And that's something that Liv worked really closely on, so she can, she can really elaborate on that topic. And this is a perfect bill right after our policy discussion because this issue started at the local level. We had a member over in Big Timber that was having an issue with DNRC. He got involved at the local level, passed a policy, passed at the state level, and we did work throughout the interim to try to resolve this issue that I'll elaborate on an issue on an 
on in a moment, but um, it became law because a member got involved at the local level. It all started at a policy. So perfect bill to talk about right away. House Bill 286 does a few things and it's now become law and it's protecting the water rights of Montana's farm and ranch families and providing due process that they currently are not receiving. So about two, a year and a half ago, we received a few calls from members in which they had received a letter from DNRC claiming partial ownership or complete ownership of a water right located on their private land that they had diverted water onto trust land via their lease. And um, DNRC claimed ownership on the grounds that they had a constitutional duty to receive the most money for that state trust land as possible. And um, they had to do that by claiming ownership of that water right. And of course, this is clearly an issue for our members and us as well. And unfortunately, we were not able to come to a solution during the interim, so hence House Bill 286. And it essentially clarifies that DNRC has to operate under the same requirements that any other water user would have to um, operate under. And that is they have to either um, go through the court process or they have to own the land in which that water is being diverted from. So that bill, was introduced by Representative Redfield out of the Big Timber area, and um, we were very happy to see it become law. And we we certainly think that this is good for state trust lands and lessees because I, I guarantee that there are quite a few lessees across the state that were going to start pulling their water because they were now going to lose part of their water right by this practice. So with it becoming law, we're just guaranteeing that um, that this practice doesn't happen in the future. And again, I think jumping back to the members and, and bringing up those issues shows the importance of paying those dues and going to their county meetings and, and just being involved. Yes. And, and I, I really, I think that's a, a perfect example of grassroots at its finest. And, and I also mentioned, of course, you went to Montana State, Liv and Chelsea went to Montana State, and I went to Montana State. We're in Go the room cats. of Bobcats. Mm -hmm. But of course, MSU is the land-grant university. We have our experiment stations and research and also extension outreach. And this kind of goes back to when there was not quite the budget that was there a few years ago. And we actually saw a little bit of a reduction in our research and our extension services. But we saw a little bit of a change in this session. Uh, what, can, what can we say on that now? Yeah, you're right, Lane. Two um, years ago in the 2017 session, both Maze and Extension received a cut in funding. So this go around, we were very, very excited to see both of those programmers receive approximately a three and a half percent increase in their funding. And when we see that at the beginning of the session, you know, we don't always get our hopes up because sometimes those funding sources can be a bit of a political football. So we were very excited to see both of those um, keep their funding increases intact this, this go around. And what was maybe some of the conversations you had with, with members about that? Because I, 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 I am on the Amorine Science Committee for MSU's College of Agriculture. And I remember just sitting in the initial meetings talking about uh, from our interim uh, extension heads and everything like that, just the fear that our key research roles, uh, sheep is a good one, uh, cattle, those extension roles could be cut or, or not filled for a long time. What was uh, the feedback you received uh, from members when you were going up on the hill? 
Well, the really great thing about both Mays and Extension is they are located and dispersed across the state in some of our most rural areas. So they are incredibly important to our guys that are on the ground. Those programs are there to receive local input and to help the local guys. So it's certainly something that is important to our members, and we were happy to advocate that and um, share that message with legislators on the Hill. And, and of course, uh, the state of Montana helps uh, ranchers out in terms of livestock loss uh, d due to many factors, mainly uh, predators. Uh, we saw some uh, conversations on the Hill and uh, about livestock loss and per capita fees. Uh, what was uh, Farm Bureau's role on that and what, how did that all iron out this year? Yeah, so um, the Livestock Loss Board provides reimbursements for losses of livestock due to predators in the state. And that program was created in 2007. And since its inception, its funding has not been increased from the 200,000. And in 2007, it was only for um, livestock losses due to wolves. And since then, we've added both grizzly bears and mountain lions to the list. So we've come to a point here in Montana where we are having all of these losses that um, the Livestock Loss Board receives applications for reimbursement and they just don't have the funds to do it. So this was incredibly important as House Bill 520 provides the Livestock Loss Board a $100,000 increase in funding. And it's those and livestock owners, those farmers and ranchers across the state that um, have to pay the price of some of the wildlife management decisions across the state that they don't have any input in. And how about the Powell Act? That was another, or Chelsea, do you have anything to add on that one? Or Well, I would just continue along the trend of the Livestock Loss Board for a moment because another piece of that component of that funding structure that was discussed during this legislative session was Senate Bill 133. And so as Liv mentioned, it has been actually a priority for the industry in the last several sessions to increase the funding for that board, but we've just never been able to get it across the finish line. So that was really refreshing this session to see that increase um, because those depredations can be expansive and they can be extremely harmful to our livestock producing members around the state. And so in addition to that, uh, Senate Bill 133 put a few more parameters on who is eligible to receive a reimbursement grant from the Livestock Loss Board. Uh, so the Livestock Loss Board is administratively attached to the Department of Livestock, and its board is made up of a variety of producers and other stakeholders from around the state. And so what Senate Bill 133 did was put into law the requirement that in order for a livestock producer to receive reimbursement for uh, depredation, they must be a current per capita fee payer. Now, per capita fees fund a significant portion of the Department of Livestock's budget, um, more than 80%, I believe. And so per capita fees are an extremely important part of making sure that the Department of Livestock is able to do all of the disease traceability, uh, brand inspection, and animal traceability work that they do that's so critically important to a state like Montana where livestock production is one of our main um, agricultural commodities. And so we think that Senate Bill 133 did, um, did a lot of good in the respect that it provides more parameters for that board to use when deciding 
who's eligible and who's not, and helps spread the word about per capita fees because um, a lot of times it is labeled inaccurately as a voluntary fee. And that's simply because there we lack a arm of enforcement. Um, it is a fee that is due every single year on all types of livestock in the state, horses, sheep, goats, bees, alpaca, ratites, which are emus, and other <laughs> ostriches, um, bison, cattle, and hogs. And the prices vary, of course, established by the Board of Livestock and the Department of Livestock. But those are fees that, frankly, a lot of people don't know that they're supposed to be paying and they don't realize that the services they receive from the Department of Livestock come directly from those fees. So we thought that Senate Bill 133 did do a good job of adding a little bit more priority to making sure that if you're going to, you know, if you're going to benefit from this honeypot, we also need to make sure we've got the appropriate amount of skin in the game too to be supporting all the other necess necessary resources. Great. Yeah. And uh, just maybe jumping back to those per capita fees, maybe someone that hasn't paid them yet mm -hmm. and there may be some, uh, how do they go about that process? So to pay your per capita fees, they're due annually, and that process has changed a little bit. You now will receive a notification from the Department of Revenue, and you pay them online. And so it, it is, I, I know that that's maybe still kind of a scary concept for some of our livestock producing membership out there, but it is very, very easy to do. I believe that notice goes out Oh man, I don't want to I know they changed it this session. Um, so I think notice goes out in March and per capita fees are due the end of May, I believe. So the PAL Act, what is that acronym? That is for Public Access Land Act. So Senate Bill 341, it seeks to resolve a little bit of the issue we have here in Montana between um, those who want increased public access and those of us that own the land that those people want to access. So um, the Public Access Land Act, it creates the ability for FWP to negotiate agreements with landowners who own private land that blocks in public land. And they can negotiate these agreements for say a parking lot, a trail, it's all negotiable. And each of those agreements can um, receive up to $15,000 in reimbursement for the landowner. And that's really important because public access does cost landowners, whether it's their time to manage it, whether it's time and resources putting in trails. Um, so that's very important. And we're very much an incentivized with a carrot rather than a stick. So we were happy to see that um, go through the process very quickly. It was very much a collaborative effort with a lot of conservation groups, a lot of um, public access um, proponents, as well as um, those of us who own private land. So that moved along quickly and became law as well. And of course, maybe jumping back into the water issue a little more, let's just give an update to our listeners on the CSKT. Of course, uh, several sessions ago, that was a very contentious issue when it right. comes to water rights and tribal water rights. Uh, how is that sitting on the federal level? But how did that also get brought up in this legislative session again, somehow? Yeah, so 
CSKT is the negotiated water compact agreement between the Confederated Salish Kootenai tribes of the state of Mon and the state of Montana. And that, like you said, Lane, that's something that has been in the works for years. It was initially before the Montana, the negotiated agreement was initially before the Montana legislature in, I believe, the 2015 session. It did not pass. It was brought again to the 2017, um, or excuse me, it was brought again to the, um, yeah, the 2017 legislative session and was um, a relatively contentious argument at that point in time um, with a lot, of, a lot of division, a lot of unfortunate misconception and inaccuracies, inaccuracies circulating, which of course seemed to go hand in hand with policymaking at times. Uh, however, it passed the legislature in 2015 and was sent to Congress. And um, yeah, I did have my dates wrong. It's 2013 and 15. Um, and so the, the Water Compact passed the Montana legislature as negotiated, but that was not its final process. Because this is a federal agreement between uh, the, the tribal body and the state of Montana, it has to have congressional ratification. And the CSKT compact is the last of seven compacts that the state has negotiated. And so we're simply at this point waiting for that congressional action. It was started in the last Congress. There was legislation introduced to begin the ratification process and in working with uh, the Department of Interior, that process had been initiated. Of course, we didn't get it off the ground. That Congress adjourned and so we're back at the starting page again. Uh, of course, there is a bit of a, a timeline there as well and uh, this is a really critically important issue to the state of Montana for a variety of reasons and probably those reasons would result in an additional podcast episode. But you know, the maybe 30,000 foot view is that Montana is still trying to adjudicate our water resources in this state. And without the final ratification of that negotiated agreement from CSKT, we cannot complete our adjudication process. And Montana is really in a position where it's our best interest to accurately and quickly finish our adjudication as a headwater state. We have a lot of downstream interests, big downstream interests, who are going to be really, really interested in our water resources as population centers grow, as transportation methods change. And so adjudication is a really important piece of the process. And this compact is um, a huge stepping stone in helping us complete that process. So right now, what we are and why it is sort of you're hearing it again in the news, you're seeing the messaging circulate again, is because we're at a point now where we would like Congress to, to give it some more um, you know, action, to give it some more consideration. And so we are working with our members as well as our congressional delegation to just again communicate and reiterate the importance of this negotiated agreement um, to the entire state of Montana and frankly not just agriculture, a lot of industries. And so from there, of course, uh, the CSKT was really contentious back in 2015 in that legislative session. And uh, jumping back to the 2019 session that just wrapped up a few uh, weeks ago, uh, a lot of cattle producers 
the idea of fake meat or alternative protein is a it's a scary thought but there's a lot of people out there that like the idea of it they've ate the impossible burger already that's made out of plants but as livestock producers many want to know what is real and what isn't real so what did the montana legislative uh, body uh, bring up this year when it comes because there's a lot of meat issues i know this year but let's talk about maybe uh, addressing alternative proteins in this session yeah you know i actually ate last night at a eating establishment here in bozeman that had the impossible burger on their menu um I can't pass judgment as I have not tried it. I did order the tri-tip. So <laughs> that it was not the impossible version of tri-tip. But Montana recently passed the Real Meat Act in the 2019 legislature. It was House Bill 327, again carried by Representative Alan Redfield, who carried House Bill 286 that Liv discussed earlier. Um, he was a busy man this legislative session. And what this piece of law does for the state of Montana is simply clarify our labeling laws when it comes to food labels on meat products. And it indicates that anything that is a cell cultured product does not qualify as a bona fide meat product in the state of Montana. Um, that's going to be, I think, a topic that will probably continue to evolve and we will probably even see more policy conversation about that in the near future because on the national and frankly global scene, you're seeing a lot of money being invested into this research and these technologies um, from traditionally large protein producing companies that are now saying this is a great way for us to diversify and so while maybe that may be true for their company's portfolio those of us who are meat producing agriculturalists are saying that's great, but we also need to make sure we're transparent with our consumers, that we're offering them the highest quality of product that we can, and that there's clear definition between the two. Well, and people can just look at dairy, for example, I, almond milk that they call it. I call it almond drank. <laughs> I, I won't call it by milk. Beverage. Beverage, drank. <laughs> but um, with, with that, uh, and the people that are for those alternative uh, uh, drinking, because uh, you can't milk a nut. That's the, the basic thing for me. But that has had a big impact on the dairy industry. And we've seen uh, so many uh, dairy producing states, because Montana, we only have about 12,000 head of dairy cows anyways. But that has had a big impact on states where their economy has been driven by dairy. So we really need to address and let consumers know what is and what isn't. Yeah, you know, there are serious ramifications if we don't, I think, approach this proactively, logistically, and head on. And I think that's really what Representative Redfield tried to do with House Bill 327 in the state of Montana. You know, I think, like I said, this is a conversation that I don't foresee going away anytime soon. I think this is just going to continue to evolve. And it's something to me that is, on a personal note, really, really interesting because I, I would love to do my own polling of consumer groups and say, you know, why is there stigma and fear associated with biotechnology, but literally growing meat in a Petri dish is acceptable? 
uh, so and viewed as frankly it's our favorite word but viewed as more sustainable yes than well-managed livestock systems on Montana's open spaces so it's very interesting topic to me. I was so thankful to Representative Redfield for bringing that up, and we were excited to be able to support that and excited to see it become law. Now, uh, staying in the meat arena, there there was a, a lot of debate and talk about placarding mm -hmm. of meat products and the difference between placarding and country of origin labeling. Um, and... Uh, what was the Montana Farm Bureau stance on some of those bills that were presented by legislators and uh, maybe talk about some of those bills sure. and kind of what came and the resolutions that also came came with that mm -hmm. debate as well? Yeah, so this was another topic that we spent quite a bit of time on during this legislative session. And you're right, Lane, in that the definition and the lines between placarding and country of origin labeling really got pretty blurred by the intent of this legislation. So Senate Bill 206 was called the Montana Placarding Act, and it proposed to implement placarding requirements on Montana's retail establishments. Now, by placarding, what they mean, if you look at the definition that already exists in state law, basically means to hang a sign. Um, and so it would have required retail establishments in Montana to hang a sign in grocery stores um, explaining the origin of the beef and pork products. And it also included uh, specific ramifications and fines if there was non-compliance, whether voluntary non-compliance or excuse me, intentional non-compliance or unintentional non-compliance. You were fined and threatened with jail time as a result. And we all know that cool has been a long-standing, complex issue for our industry. There's not an easy answer uh, to the country of origin labeling when it comes to beef and pork products in this country. Montana Farm Bureau's policy supports country of origin labeling that is WTO, World Trade Organization compliant, and does benefit the U.S. livestock producer and the Montana ranch family. So we did not support Senate Bill 206 in its original format. We did have the opportunity to work closely with the bill's sponsor and attempt to have several conversations about our concerns and why we did not think this would do anything in the name of consumer transparency when, um, when that was not successful. We opposed that bill and what came out of that conversation was SJ16, which was a Senate joint resolution. And so that is an official letter from the legislative body and the state of Montana to our congressional delegation. And we asked them to, again, broach this subject with USDA. You know, we have the rules. They were simply repealed and not enforced after 2015 and the rulings with the WTO and threatened retaliation from both Canada and Mexico. So this is not an easy fix. Uh, I think we can all agree on that. But it is an issue that needs to be handled at than the federal level if it's to be a true effective solution that both provides consumer transparency and benefits the U.S. livestock producer. And uh, that resolution 
uh, that that was obviously that's going to our elected officials in Washington, D.C. Have we heard any feedback from those elected officials on if they've read that or, or kind of their take on that? We haven't followed up with them post-legislative session, but we actually had communications with some of our congressional members prior to. And we did a little legwork saying, we would like this resolution to be put on your desk. Is this a conversation you're willing to open up about again and work with us on pursuing? And at that time, the response was extremely positive and we heard feedback from our members of Congress that yes, there were offices interested in again pursuing the cool conversation at the federal level. And uh, also, we've seen uh, catastrophic wildfires across the West in the state of Montana uh, over the past uh, few years. And of course, that comes into to management and, uh, and to also radical environmentalists and, and those that don't understand that fire actually is healthy. But let's suppress it because, you know, we don't want to log anything. But uh, obviously, <laughs> hopefully our listeners can hear the sarcasm in my voice. But uh, let's talk about that fire assessment fee uh, that uh, was brought up in this session. Yeah, Lane, that's House Bill 31. And this was a bill that actually came out of an interim committee meeting or interim committee, the Environmental Quality Council. And it was in direct response to the 2017 fire season, which had fires in all 56 counties. Um, currently, there is a wildfire preparedness assessment that is placed on um, Western landowners. And that was a voluntary assessment that those landowners voted on themselves. and. The funds collected from that assessment um, essentially make up a third of the entire fire preparedness budget. And when we're talking fire preparedness, we are talking every expense up until the actual start of the fire. At that point, it comes out of the fire suppression budget, so equipment and training. So what House Bill 31 endeavored to do was um, make that funding mechanism more equitable. Unfortunately, it did not do that. It took what was a voluntary assessment on the Western landowners to a, um, a statewide assessment placed on all landowners across the state. And there would be a base um, fee per parcel then there would be another fee if they had timber on that parcel and then an additional fee if there's a dwelling on site. So we essentially saw this as just an additional property tax that would be put on landowners, rural landowners, as cities and towns were excluded from this um, and very much a non-starter for, for us. Um, so we were happy to see that killed in committee and not pursued any further. There wasn't one proponent in the room, so. <laughs> and uh, I, I think this is one of the, the funnier things, but it, it is a serious issue because the impact that coyotes have on on uh, all livestock operations, whether it's cattle or sheep, it's a huge economic uh, uh, factor when it comes to all these operations that are impacted by coyotes and predators. But there was a coyote derby bill, if I'm correct on this, that was supported by PETA and other animal rights groups. Um, and of course, communities across the state of Montana and the West, in fact, have coyote derbies to, uh, you know, kind of have a opportunity for locals to come together and have a, a recreational opportunity, but to also manage those predator numbers of coyotes. Uh, what was this bill and how bad was it defeated in the legislative session? Thanks to Farm Bureau. Well, <laughs> we can't take all the credit, but um, it was pretty badly defeated. Uh, Senate Bill 186 would have prohibited 
all coyote derbies in the state of Montana. And as you alluded to, yes, this is a piece of legislation that while they were not the front man for this, PETA was directly involved with supporting and bringing to the Montana legislature. And thankfully, we still have a legislative body in the state of Montana that recognizes the risk of inviting and welcoming those sort of radicalized or extreme views to an extent into our state policy. And this was an area for the reasons that you mentioned that this is a cont predator control mechanism um, that we're able to utilize throughout rural Montana to help mitigate depredation by this predator. It's something that's really important to, to us in a lot of areas. And so while we did defeat this bill, uh, early in the session, in fact, it actually didn't survive past the transmittal date. What's interesting about this, and one one area we always like to talk about with our membership and the public in general, is that this is really something that you shouldn't take lightly, this specific topic. Because like you said, it seems silly to kind of bring this bill to the Montana legislature and expect it to garner any traction. However, what we see and what we have seen historically from some of these more nationally based animal welfare um, or animal rights and more extreme viewpoints is that this is how they operate is they bring these pieces of legislation to various state bodies and basically see how far they can get. Uh, we saw this a few years ago in the state of Montana with the anti-trapping initiative, which had a lot of HSUS dollars behind it, the Humane Society of the United States. Again, they were not the spokesperson, they were not the front runner, but they were funding it. Um, interestingly enough, both the states of Oregon and Arizona had extremely similar coyote derby bills in their legislatures this winter, and I was unable to actually find before we sat down to record list what happened to those pieces of policy in those legislat legislatures, but the point being that um, you know, we must be vigilant as farmers and ranchers, as lobbyists, as policymakers, to the fact that these shouldn't be taken lightly, however silly they seem, because these lead to much, much larger ramifications that we have seen with things like Proposition 2 in the state of California, changes in Colorado, changes in Ohio um, over the years. And so this is one of those bills that, yeah, we were thankful in the state of Montana. This was um, an easy tally to put in the win column, but something that we still need to be aware of and always planning for. Well, Chelsea, that just circles back to the changing demographics that we are seeing in the state of Montana, especially in places like Bozeman, which, you know, it used to be a cow town mm -hmm. 30, right. 30, 30, 40 years ago. Right. And now it's, it's competing with the size of Missoula County already. Um, and it continues to grow and we're seeing that in Billings and we're seeing less and less people involved or connected to a farm or ranch. And then that also, attributes to those elected officials in Helena not having an understanding. And that jumps back to the importance of all farmers and ranchers or just people in rural communities being members of Montana Farm Bureau and, and uh, having their voice heard. Right. Now, that's one of the things that we really try to send home with our membership all the time is how important their voice is individually, but collectively as a member of Montana Farm Bureau, because Liv and I got to experience this daily when we work during the session, but it's also a message that I 
feel pretty strongly about communicating to our membership all the time is the fact that you know, in the state of Montana, we say that there are less and less boots under the desks in Helena. And that is a demographic that is not changing anytime soon in this state. In fact, it's probably going to lean even more towards urban representation compared to rural representation. We've got another census coming up in 2020, and all of the early estimations predict that that's exactly what we're going to see. And so it's more critical now and will continue to be more critical now than ever before that farmers and ranchers are working with their elected officials. And even if it is your local elected official who's your neighbor and a rancher just like you or a small business owner from your community who knows that agriculture is the economic driver in that area and is the only reason they're able to keep the doors on their hardware store or their gas station or their grocery store open, um, we need to recognize that that's a pretty unique situation in our legislative body these days. And so the other part of now specifically my job with Montana Farm Bureau is in addition to the lobbying is how to help members really interact with and build lasting and meaningful relationships with those elected officials to help them better understand what we do as an industry. Now Liv, uh, what was it like your first session uh, up up in Helena, uh, living there full time for the 90 days of the session. What were those big takeaways? And I will mention Montana Farm Bureau celebrated their 100th birthday uh, this legislative session. The governor had a proclamation, so it was a big celebration. I, I had the opportunity to travel up there for that. But what were, what were your big takeaways representing Montana Farm Bureau members? Yeah, well, just like Chelsea said, you know, I did go in with the understanding that we do have more urban legislators. But something I didn't realize right away is our job is not to just lobby, it's also to educate. Because just with the House Agriculture Committee alone, I think we had three um, legislators from Missoula, urban Missoula. And so when we go into those committees, when we speak to these legislators, we not only speak on the issues, but we have to give quite a bit of background for them to understand. So that was something that I didn't expect as much going into it, but I'm happy to do that educating as well as the advocating. Um, but I heard that this session was a little bit of a tame session, which is a little fearful being it was my first one, but um, it went really, really well. And um, just as a takeaway, um, like with the proclamation, when I was there, something that I gathered very, very quickly was that Farm Bureau is very, very well respected in Helena and across the state. So it truly is a pleasure to work for this organization. Now, uh, I'm sure you'll be sharing an update with members if you're listening to this before the uh, summer conference of the Montana Farm Bureau. That, of course, is going to be held here in Bozeman at the Grand Tree in the 11th through the 13th, I think are the dates, Correct. just kind of coming off of the top of my head. Uh, what are some of the uh, activities and uh, events that will be occurring during that summer meeting? Yeah, so it starts on the 11th with a few of our committees. We've got the Women's Leadership Committee meeting, our board and our foundation will have their meetings. I think the Young Farmer and Rancher Committee has a full slate of activities that day, which we're very excited about. And then the next day really turns into um, more of our business type stuff. So we have a speaker in the morning and then we um, break out for a couple workshops. I know that we have a workshop from with someone from... Um, the Department of Agriculture on hemp. We've got a couple different 
a wide variety of workshops. And then after that, we have our MFBF advisory committees. So that conversation we had about policy earlier on really also comes down to our advisory committees. So we have a wide array of issues that are covered in these committees and um, they start talking about what issues they're facing at the local level. What issues did they hear about during the session that maybe we don't have policy on? And then they start having that broader discussion so that they can go back to their counties and introduce policy. Of course, uh, then coming up in November, and I don't have those dates on <laughs> hand either, but uh, the Farm Bureau will have their official 100th uh, celebration, their 100th convention in Billings downtown there at the, uh, I want to call it the Sheridan. That's not the Sheridan Hotel the anymore. The Double Tree. What was it? The, the Sheridan... Uh, God, that, that that hotel. Every yeah. hotel has changed names. I just but always <laughs> called it the Sheridan. The Sheridan. We'll be the at the DoubleTree in the Northern. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we'll be split between both hotels, and um, that is still that agenda is still a work in progress. Because yes, this is the centennial celebration of the Montana Farm Bureau. So this has been a date that we have been planning for for about the last four years in our organization, and so we're really looking forward to. Uh, some really great stuff and celebrating the monumental leaders of our history, celebrating our heritage of the last 100 years, but also doing a lot of hard work from the perspective of where do we want our organization to be in the next 100 years? What are the roles we need to be serving to best um, provide for our Farm Bureau membership and the agricultural industry in the state of Montana. So this is, I think, a really exciting time to be a part of Montana Farm Bureau and a really exciting energy that our group is experiencing this year as we are really motivated and encouraged by the values and the fundamentals that this organization was built on and also then using that excitement and that energy to look forward for the next 100 years and frankly see all the opportunity that exists for our organization and agriculture now ladies is, is there anything else we've been talking for just under an hour now on uh, yeah on uh, on the uh, advocacy that uh, you uh, provided uh, Montana Farm Bureau members and Helena this year anything else that you'd like to leave our our listeners here today well, if you aren't a member, we would love to have you. And if you are not directly involved in agriculture, but support the industry, the number one industry in the state of Montana, we also have an associate membership. So, yeah, great way to support your, your neighbors in those rural communities and, and get involved at the local level and be a part of, you know, programs and education and outreach that have a real lasting impact for the state of Montana. Well, Chelsea Cargill and Liv Stavick, thank you so much for, for taking a few minutes here. I know you were doing leadership training all day with Farm Bureau members here, Chelsea, but uh, we'll have uh, more information on the Montana Farm Bureau in the link in the podcast. And of course, you can visit them online at mfbf.org today. And of course, if you're not from Montana, but you're interested in learning more about your state Farm Bureau, I'm sure you can just put that in the old Google and you'll be able to find out more information on how Farm Bureau advocates for rural America and for farmers and ranchers. Well, that'll do it for today's Agriculture Conversation. I'm Lane Nordland. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for tuning into the LaneCast with Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster and NordlandCommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the LaneCast.